Uh, we're going to return for the uh, final time because Dwayne told me this morning that uh, next week, if you want to get a head start, you may want to uh, read the uh, first chapter of Hebrews as he starts through that next week. So uh, you uh, can look forward to that. But we're going to return, uh, you know, thinking about that song. Uh, two things popped in my mind. Now, these are free, okay? Uh, I think about one, that uh, when J.S. Bach was uh, the organist in the church there in Germany, they used to sing that, of course, and it has like 27 verses. And they used to sing all of them. And between every verse, he used to improvise a fugue. So if you, I guess they were just made of sterner stuff that they could uh, stay through 27 verses and, and Bach uh, improvising. But I also thought in the line we sang before where it says, I hear my voice among the crowd. One of the products of the Reformation were conversion of many people, some of them artists, and maybe the greatest of the artists of the Reformation, post, right after the Reformation, would have been Rembrandt. And he did a self-portrait, but it was not a self-portrait like so many other people's. His self-portrait was of him being one of the people raising the cross. And, uh, you know, by which he testified that I am a sinner that this was being done for. You didn't see, like in so many paintings of the cross, you didn't see the front. You saw the back. And he is raising the cross. And I just thought that's what went through my mind. So now you know how my mind goes. We're going to return to this final time to Jesus' instructions to his disciples on the night before he was crucified. As we looked last week, they are no longer in the upper room. They are walking toward Gethsemane where Jesus is going to pray and be arrested. In John 16, which is where we're going to be, starting with verse 7, but in verses 1 to 6, just to put it into context, Jesus again reminds his disciples that there are difficult times coming because of their association with him. He turns again to his topping of his going away and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the first thing he tells them is that coming of the Holy Spirit is required. It's the first part of our outline. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. He says it is necessary, it is required, it is for your benefit that I go away. And one of the things that that is true about that is if I don't go, the Holy Spirit's not coming. Now he will shortly pray, O oh, Father, if this cup may pass not away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And there's a lot wrapped up in that. But he declares that it is necessary that he go to the cross, that he go to the tomb, that he be resurrected. Because if he doesn't, then the Holy Spirit is not going to come. It is interesting that this word expedient is the same word that comes out of the mouth of the high priest in condemning Jesus. John 11:49, and one of them, in the council that is, 
named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. Uses the same word. It's necessary for Jesus to die. And Jesus would agree that it was necessary. The disciples would not have agreed. They would not have thought it was their, in their very best interest that Jesus leave and be crucified. But the work assigned to the Son by the Father must be finished. As the writer of the song we just sang, Martin Luther, once said, and speaking, putting words in the mouth of Jesus, unless I die, everything stays the same. Jews under the law of Moses, the heathen in their blindness, all under sin and death. No scripture would then be fulfilled, and I should have come in vain. We need the Spirit because there are tasks we cannot do without His work, and He would not come until the cross work was done. Then He could begin to declare to the world their need of a Savior by His, and here's your second point, His reproof. By His, his job of reproving people. Here Jesus says, verse 8, And when He has come, He will reprove the world of sinner, sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Part of the Spirit's assignment is to declare the world's guilt before God and its alienation from Him. The world is reproved, convicted, this word is translated other place, of its status. This is said to be a legal term. That means to pronounce a judicial verdict by which the guilt of a culprit is defined so that it cannot be dismissed without, with an excuse or evaded. It does not necessarily mean the world is going to accept that verdict. Only that the case is going to be clearly declared. And, again in that definition it was stated, And he who rejects it does so with his eyes open and at his own peril. All are guilty and the guilt proved and judgment is announced. The nouns here are without articles. There's no the in front of them. So what is pronounced is not a single sin or a list of sins, but sin in its very nature. And in both, in all three of these areas, sin, righteousness, and judgment, the world believes fatal errors about itself and about Jesus. If you look at the events of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, we see the first couple. Sin by disobedience because of the benefit that they envisioned. That it was for their good, for their righteousness, and ignored God's promise of judgment. So this has been mankind's state since the fall. And the results are still with us. All religious errors can be traced to Adam's hiding from God because he said, I was afraid of you. All psychological problems from his statement, I was naked and I hid myself. And the source of all interpersonal difficulties to Adam blaming Eve, the woman whom thou gavest to be me with me, she gave me of the tree. I recall when Dwayne and I were in Zambia, we had a student, Janet Banda, 
And we got to this point in Genesis, and I recall asking her, how do you think Eve felt when she heard Adam blame her? And her words, I quote to you, it must have hurt her to her heart. We can trace all ecological problems to God's statement, cursed is the ground for thy sake. But we are obstinate and stiff-necked people. That is the verdict the Holy Spirit is sent to declare. And without an acknowledgement of their condition, it is impossible that any will seek a remedy. What is the content of the conviction of this announcement of the guilt of the world? Verse 9. Of sin because they believe not on me. Matthew Henry wrote, They do not believe, they deny the fact of sin, the fault of sin, the filth of sin, and the fruit of sin, that being death. But they are by nature unwilling to acknowledge that a real problem exists. That it's a matter of opinion what is true and what is right. That sin is not sin, but a breach of etiquette. It is not depravity that defines our status before God, they say. The total depravity of man is maybe the most hated doctrine we declare. All of mankind is, without a work of God, completely unacceptable to God. The Spirit does not present His indictment based on a list of sins, although Romans 2 says they know there is, the world knows there's a problem of sin because they make human laws against it and have customs against it, against the bad behavior, and thereby they admit that there is a standard outside of themselves that human beings are to be judged by. Uh, Romans 2.15 which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, but like guilty criminals who may still deny their guilt, which has been fully provide, uh, proved against them. They refuse to accept the real reason for the problem and ignore the only remedy. What is it? Here we are confronted with a statement by Jesus that if it were said by anybody else, would be blasphemy or insanity. He makes the ultimate fact of sin and the reason it's proven is because they don't believe on Him. He does not say God in general. He says me. That a person will not believe on Jesus Christ who bore all the Father's wrath for sin is the prime indication that they still remain in their sin. That is the first accusation the Holy Spirit makes against mankind. For the world, the Holy Spirit is not a comforter, but a discomforter. The second indictment is of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. It is interesting that he does not simply build upon the word sin and say he convicts them of unrighteousness. The paraclete declares the world has a false standard of righteousness. 
of what is acceptable to God. Another Lutheran theologian wrote, Men everlastingly seek righteousness, making itself the judge of its own case. Men evolve their own schemes for appearing righteous. They accept religions which teach works. Righteousness as a true way to heaven. Always the world seeks to find and secure righteousness for itself by its efforts of its own. All of which God rejects and the Spirit corrects as an error and then again points to Jesus. How do we know Jesus alone was righteous without flaw? The standard by which all men will be measured? It won't be by comparing themselves to each other. It won't be comparing themselves to the disciples because they were all flawed and so are we. As a uh, famous sinner, who was also a poet, wrote, There's so much bad in the best of us that it hardly behooves any of us to talk about the rest of us. That was Lord Byron. Let's face facts. Last time the world saw Jesus, it was a man tried, convicted, condemned, and executed as a blasphemer, as a troublemaker and a dangerous heretic, an obvious enemy of God. But man's judgment was wrong about him. The Holy Spirit declares a different verdict. Jesus had conformed completely to God's standard of righteousness. How do we know that? The reason we know that is that the Father accepted him back into heaven. To the place of honor. Man's verdict was that he was a criminal. God's verdict was this. Philippians chapter 3 verses 9 to 11 after talking about his cross work wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here we are to know this and the Holy Spirit tells us how heaven received Jesus. No longer would his followers be able to say or he'd be able to say to his followers come and see because he won't be here physically. No longer would he ask his enemies using the same word here which of you convinces me of sin? They won't have that him here to do that. Since His exaltation and the coming of the Spirit, when a man or a men think that they possess or can attain righteousness acceptable to God on their own, the Holy Spirit, as it were, takes the measuring rod of Jesus Christ and puts it up to their lives and finds that they do not conform. As Romans 3.23 that most of us could quote, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We do not measure up. Jesus, rejected on earth, was accepted in heaven. And we may be accepted on earth, but be rejected by heaven.
It is because of the Holy Spirit has shown you how sinful you are and how really righteous Jesus is that He places us in Him that we may have His righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That's where our righteousness comes from. The Holy Spirit declares humanity's universal and intractable sinfulness and the absolute righteousness of demands of God. And He also goes on to say there's inevitable consequence for being a sinner and rejecting God's righteousness. And that is judgment. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Verse 11. Instead of saying the Holy Spirit will give men visions of hell with all its horrors, as real as they are, and as certain as man's doom is, he says the Holy Spirit will declare that man's fate is because we choose and have chosen the wrong side in the invisible war. And we lost. The verb tense indicates that this is an accomplished fact. Has been judged on the cross. From our fallen Adam, the promise is given about the coming of a Savior who will give a victory over Satan. To Eve, he said, I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. When Jesus cried, it is finished on the cross, the serpent's head was crushed. The usurper's rule, usurping ruler of this world was dethroned. What may have looked like a victory of Satan was in fact the falling of the gavel, pronouncing the verdict of guilty and the final sentence of the lake of fire. We were saying Luther's words penned there. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. And we are told, however, you know, that you don't miss things completely. We are told in 1 Peter 5.8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. But despite how it looked, he lost. And we are warned in 2 Corinthians 2.11, lest Satan should get an ad advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. He is still a judged and doomed individual. But man still listens to Satan's lies. Whenever an atheist says there is no God, if a man says, you know, I'm not so bad. Whenever a cultist tells you Jesus is not God. When a preacher denies the fact of man's complete lostness or declares there is universal salvation apart from Jesus. That person is speaking words whispered in his ear 
by the chief liar. Even if they choose to deny his existence. They change the truth of God into a lie. Romans 1.25 Even we who have trusted Christ and are his followers at times speak devil's lies like when Peter <laughs> Jesus he says turn and says who do men say that I am? He says you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus says well you didn't get that down here. My father revealed that to you. And then he says then he says it began to show him that he is going to Jerusalem and he's going to die. And Peter says, that's not going to happen to you. And Jesus looked at him, and who, had, who was one of his followers, who is just praised for listening to the Father's teaching, and says, get thee behind me, Satan. That's how quickly it can turn. When the same Peter had to deal with a couple in the first congregation, he told them in Acts 5.3, why a Satan filled thy heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Although judged and doomed, Satan is powerful, intelligent, and frightening, but not as powerful and not as intelligent as the one sent to be your guardian here, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whose assignment is to bring you safely and securely home. Jesus then says that the Holy Spirit is a revealer. I have many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them. Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He hear, that shall He speak, and He will show you things to come. He will glorify Me, for He shall receive of Mine, and shall show them unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I, that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. The Holy Spirit is required to reprove the world, but he is also required to re reveal the things we need to be reinforced. And I'm going to quickly go through what Jesus highlighted here. First of all, he reveals that we are weak and frail people. incapable of understanding circumstances we confront. Jesus does not berate them at this point. That they're not able to bear what he would like to say to them. The circumstances, he just says they're in their humanity, in their frailty, in their confusion, in their fear. There was a limited understanding. And it caused them not to have the ability to bear it now. They were too immature, too consumed with their own thoughts to be able to absorb any more information about what was about to happen to their beloved master. We are reminded, as we read before, for he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. There are times in our life when we are unable to make any sense of what we face. When we are ready for more, the paraclete will provide the divine commentary. He will reveal the truth, it says. When He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. 
Jesus said when. He didn't give a date. But we know it would happen 50 days later that the Spirit would guide them to understand what had happened. And that He would teach them the truth that would not only be true to them, but to God for all time, in all circumstances and cultures. And despite the postmodern objections that ultimate truth is not knowable and may not exist at all, we have been given the Spirit of truth. And He is given to guide us with heaven's perspective about the facts we could never discover on our own. This will come as a gift from God. John 1 5, James, excuse me, James 1 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask from God, who upbraideth not, and giveth all men liberally, and it shall be given him. Here is Jesus, as it were, pre authorizing, pre authenticating the New Testament. The Spirit will guide them to speak and write the truth. 2 Peter 1 3, unto us, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that called us to glory and virtue. That is what He will reveal. What they were taught by the Holy Spirit and what God wants us to know today will be through, true throughout eternity. And to ignore Scripture or attempt to redefine it is destructive and not of the Spirit. A couple of times recently I've seen on couple of churches, a sign that says God is still speaking. Now if they mean by that, that you can still hear God's voice as the Holy Spirit opens the Scriptures, I'll agree. But if they mean that somehow, as I fear, that something new is being said, something different from what is clearly recorded in the Scripture, I completely disagree. The new morality is simply old morality, old immorality dressed up and is still now and forever wrong. What the Spirit teaches can be trusted because of its origin. As Jesus said, for He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall he speak. I read an old sermon in preparation for this, and this preacher said, if the Spirit himself may not speak of himself, if only, but only speak what he hears, has heard from the Father and from the Son, O preacher, how come you, out of thyself, preach out of thy head or even out of thy heart? The meaning is not that the Holy Spirit has some opinions that differ from the other two and just keeps quiet about them. No, that's not what he's saying. But what he says will perfectly express the perfect singular truth of God. Paul, knowing that what he had preached in Galatia was the truth and not to be tampered with, wrote what we had read a while ago. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel, unto you than that which we have preached unto you. Let him be accursed. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Can I make a bold statement that frankly I borrowed from somebody else? If God were to decide today to speak audibly out of heaven, he would have to say something he has already said in the scripture. He has no other message for you. Jesus adds this. He will show you things to come. The Holy Spirit, through these men, did write about future things. But I don't think that's what he primarily had in mind. The original tense, the things that are coming, I think refer to the cross, to the resurrection and its application as, this, as the old age comes to an end and a new one begins. Jesus has earlier said that the Holy Spirit will cause them to remember the past flawlessly, and now he says the Holy Spirit will teach you about the future flawlessly. They would be able to see clearly and relate it to what Scripture had already said about the future. The Holy Spirit is not given to you to make you a fortune teller. But He will allow you to organize your life in a way which secures the future God has prepared for you. Now I'm going to make a little aside here. Okay? Although I am a dispensationalist, there's a whole bunch of people who claim that same tag. These teachers who I believe have brought what I believe into uh, disrepute. By attempting every day on the radio and in their ministries to read into every headline in today's newspaper some fulfillment of prophecy. There's even one guy I heard recently who said, this is the last president we will ever have because the Bible says the, at the last trump. I, I didn't make that up. And I recall 20 years ago, or 21 years ago, there were a whole bunch of people talking about year 2000. And almost all of them wanted to sell you survivalist gear. <laughs> that sort of talk is not from the Holy Spirit. Well, let's get off that. Turn to Jesus' last remark about the Holy Spirit here. That He is going to be a revealer of the Savior. Verse 14. He will glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I, he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Again, I say, if anybody else spoke these words, it would be blasphemy. Isn't it interesting that Jesus talks about the works of the Holy Spirit and uses five pronouns that are first person singular and talks about himself? You can look at them there. Me, mine, what? Uh, I, mine, <laughs> talks about himself. As C.S. Lewis wrote, any person, any man who spoke as Jesus spoke 
was either a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, a demon from hell, or the Lord of glory. Those are the options about somebody who would say something like this. He is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. If we take what Jesus said about himself as true, then we can agree with Paul. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians 2.9 This is the Jesus the Holy Spirit reveals. It is not a mistake that all heresies throughout all of the church time begin by redefining who Jesus is. Satan does not care what you preach as long as you preach the wrong Jesus. These same men who will shortly deny Jesus in a few weeks will be called before the religious and civil rulers of Israel. And this is what they will say to them, Acts 5.40. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them. And they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. That's what they told them. You can do whatever you want. Just don't talk about Jesus. And these men, being filled with the Holy Spirit, could not be silenced. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer shame for His name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And frankly, it is unfortunate that lots of people who claim the name of Jesus Christ desire things from the Holy Spirit that Jesus never promised them and seek their own glory rather than His. Jesus here talks about things that we can't unravel that involves the inner working of the Trinity. But learn this. One, Jesus is the complete revelation of the Father. All things that the Father hath are mine. And He is the entire message of the Holy Spirit. He shall take of mine and show it unto you. Here is a clear indication of the nature of the triune God. Their unity of nature and of purpose with a distinction of persons with a single message. I'm not going to tread too far on what Dwayne's going to start on next week, but just simply quote. From Hebrews 1. God, who has sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty, on high. <coughs> Excuse me. This is the Jesus that the Holy Spirit declares. Anything else is less than, is, anything else is heresy. Jesus is not Michael the archangel. He is not the first son 
of a polygamous God. He is not a great prophet of Islam. He is not the leader of a people's revolt or even the greatest of human teachers. As they approached Gethsemane, from the text we see that the disciples were still wondering what all this meant. He tells them that soon they will weep and the world will rejoice, verse 20, but that that weeping will be temporary. Your sorrow will be turned to joy. But not until after they collapse under the pressure and verse 32 and their failure. However, their failure will not prevent him from accomplishing his mission on the cross. It would not disqualify them from enjoying the fruit of his victory on the cross. Verse 33, in this world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Why did Jesus set his affection on these eleven? And why does he set his affection on us? I do not know. But he prayed that night for them and for us in the next chapter. For any that the Holy Spirit confronts with their sin, their lack of righteousness, that they are suited only for judgment, and then speaks the message to their hearts of the greatness of Jesus and His salvation. For them, Jesus prayed, Father, I will be that they also which Thou hast given me. Be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which Thou hast given me, for Thou hast loved me from the foundation of the world. I end here and I admit I have only scratched the surface of the subject of the Holy Spirit in the last three weeks. It is my prayer and hope that you have learned to appreciate Him anew. The one that was present in Genesis 1-2 at the creation, active throughout all of the Old Testament, indwelled and empowered the New Testament, is mentioned for the last time in the final chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. And ever true to his mission in inspiring this work starts out this way. I, Jesus, am the root and offspring of David and the bride and the morning star and the spirit and the bride say, come. And that's what I say to you. Come to Jesus Christ. He is your only source of hope. Oh God, our Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit will take what is said in the Scriptures that He inspired and imprint upon our hearts as only He can do. And that He will glorify Jesus Christ anew to us because that's the message He came to give. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.